Good morning, church family. Today's scripture reading comes from John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Edenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Abigail. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if I've not met you yet, my name is Blake Rogers. I'm standing in for Jason Dees today. If you came here to hear Jason, you gotta come back next week. Okay, you gotta come back next week. But you know what? I do wanna say at the start of this, I get the irregular opportunity to, to preach God's word for our church family. And it's a tough task. The, the task of preparation is rigorous, and we've got a pastor that bears and shoulders that burden every single week, and we should be very, very grateful for him and all that he does. Uh, but I do have the opportunity today to, to talk with you, to learn with you from John chapter 3, uh, from what Abigail just read, and I'm really pumped to be able uh, to do that. You know, so much of world history can be remembered, can be framed up through individual persons, okay? History can be framed up through characters. I'm going to mention a few, okay? Alexander the Great, what comes to your mind? Well, likely it's the Roman Empire, the Great Roman Empire, led by Alexander the Great. What about Winston Churchill? Some things come to mind. Likely Great Britain, at least it does for me. Likely World War II. Likely victory. But what about Adolf Hitler? Very similar, right? 
Similar time frame as Winston Churchill, but some other things come to mind when you think about the character of Adolf Hitler. You think about the German Holocaust. Uh, you think about the German Holocaust likely through an oppressor standpoint, right? But then you think of Anne Frank, and Anne Frank brings forth a whole nother category of, a whole nother side of what the Holocaust experience was like, though she too was living during that same time. To bring it closer to Atlanta, what about Sid Bream? Any, any Braves fans out there? Hopefully I'm not like, I want to test my contextualization skills, okay? All right, what, what does Sid Bream bring to mind? Say it. The slide, that's right. 1992, it's game seven, NLCS. I watched it this morning, and I was just so pumped. It was like the greatest slide ever. The slide. What about Jamal Anderson, running back? What's that? The Dirty Bird. Okay, good. Yeah, we, we remember things through people. And last week, we looked at a man whom you should remember. His name was Nicodemus. He famously came to Jesus at night. As Thomas Nelson reminded us in our teaching meeting, you should remember, Nick at night, right? He comes to Jesus at night. Thomas is full of all of these pithy one-liners, okay? He likes to make the people laugh, which is a good thing. Uh, but you should also remember the ideas of the new birth whenever you think about Nicodemus. Well, today we're looking at a different character. And, and the interesting thing about Nicodemus is he shows up in multiple times in John. He shows up Nick at night, John 3, he shows up in John 7 to defend Jesus among the Pharisees, and then he actually shows up again in John chapter 19 when Jesus is being buried. Nicodemus is there. There's a character. And as you read the Bible, you should remember the characterization and the things that they bring forth to your mind. So the same is true for John the Baptist that we will look at today. Uh, John the Baptist is one of the central characters in all of the New Testament Gospels, but he certainly plays a prominent role in the Gospel of John. And the very first place we see John the Baptist is here. In John chapter 1 and verse 19 through 20, says this, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. You just heard him say the same thing again, I am not the Christ. And you should begin to, to kind of put forward in your mind or put together in your mind that John is here to perform a particular function, but he's not here to be the Savior. He is not the one whom we are waiting for. However, he has an important role. He shows up in John 1. He shows up again in John 3. He shows up in the other Gospels, as we'll look at here in just a little bit. But he is an important character. And we get to learn some things that we need to know for life and health and flourishing as Christians through the lens of John the Baptist. But my, my basic thesis today is this, okay? So catch this, that Jesus is the Messiah, not John the Baptist. Jesus is the Messiah that our hearts long for. He's not just a man who is written about in an ancient text. Rather, he, he is someone who fulfills the very longings of our hearts today, thousands of years later, and all for eternity. The thesis, Jesus is the Messiah, 
and deliverer that our hearts long for, and seeing him properly completes our joy. Seeing him properly completes our joy. And so in a real sense, what I hope that you get from today is just a better picture of Jesus. And the result of that is that your joy will be complete. And we're really going to look at this through three points. We're going to look at the dispute that happens early in this passage. We're going to look at the voice of the bridegroom uh, here in just a moment. And then we're going to look at John's explanation for what these things mean. So, the dispute. All right. The setting is there. You've got Jesus baptizing people on this side. You've got John the Baptist and his disciples baptizing on this side. Jesus has a crowd, and John the Baptist has a crowd. Okay? The setting is there. It's, it's set for us, right? And it wasn't long when we have these two different groups, John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples baptizing, that we have a dispute, a question that comes from one of the Jews. Now, one preacher wrote, hang around Baptists long enough and a dispute will arise, okay? It's kind of what you see uh, here in this text. Um, but what is this dispute? Well, I, I think it kind of centers on this idea of the fear of missing out, okay? FOMO. Y'all familiar with that? FOMO? There's, there's FOMO present in these disciples' minds. You've got John's disciples over here watching Jesus' disciples over there, and they're watching the crowds, and they're saying, wait a minute, John, what is different about the baptism that Jesus is offering all of the crowds are going to him. Maybe we need to go over there. Maybe we are missing out on something that we're going to regret by not being over with Jesus and participating in the baptism that he offers. This is the nature of the dispute. FOMO. Y'all get FOMO. It's, it's the idea that you've got to be at the party to see what happens and if you're not at the party, or if you don't get invited to the party, you have great anxiety about not participating in the party. It's, a, it's the, the sense that you get when you watch the Apple commercials for the new iPhone, right? If you don't get this, you're not getting the best that life has to offer. Fear of missing out. Don't be there. Don't do that. Or the fear of not being in the right crowd, not, not being a part of the right club, by the way, if you live your life under this fear of missing out, you will always miss pursuing the best things with your time. Okay, that, that's, that's no way to live life, but that is what the question is at hand here for John and his disciples. But there are really two things that we need to consider, okay? And the first is this. What does purification have to do with baptism, okay? And then we'll look at why are all going to Jesus, what is this idea of purification? Well, this idea of purification is something that by and large should be near and dear to your heart, right? Uh, you, we've got this famous passage. The psalmist in 119.9 says this, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to the word? You and I as Christians, we need to be people who are concerned with living pure lives, lives that look more and more from one degree to another, more and more like Christ and the purity that he was and is. 
we should have a trajectory of our life toward purity. This should be something that's central to us. But purification is also something that is fundamentally an issue for us. We are born into the world as impure people. And we as Christians recognize that the purity that, that God sees in us is not our own. Rather, it is that which Christ has given us because he lived the life that you should have lived and that I should have lived. He died the death that we all deserved. But in doing so, God no longer looks at us through the lens of the impurities and the sinfulness that we have brought into the world. Rather, he looks at us through the purity and the righteousness of Christ. Purity is something that is essential for Christians to consider and to think through, and it was on the front lines of what these people were thinking through, even in this day. But you know what? The text really doesn't mention much more about this dispute, does it? Purity or purification is not really the main point of this text. I imagine that this conversation, this dispute, this conversation with John is going down something a little bit like this. A Jewish man looks to John and his disciples and says, look, you're baptizing lots of people. Good for you. That's good. You're baptizing lots of people. And it looks like a bath, right? So is this some kind of purification method? Is this actual purification or is this symbolic purification? We don't know. But listen, more and more people are leaving your group and they're going over to that group. So what's the deal with that kind of purification, that kind of baptism that is being offered over there? Does his work and yours fail in the end? Does his actually make people pure and yours fail to make people pure? We don't know. But what we do know is that all were going to him. And that's really the next question we need to look at, or that's, why, that's what we need to consider here. We've, we know these people fear that they are missing out on something. But we also see within this question an invitation for John the Baptist to be injured, to be hurt, okay? Think about this with me. This guy, John the Baptist, you might remember from like the kids' flip books or like if your, your parents read Bible stories with you or if you, you know, spent any time in Sunday school growing up, we know that John the Baptist was kind of a wiry man, right? He was, he was dressed in camel's hair and he ate locust and honey. He was kind of this oddball figure. And whenever I think about that, I'm like, well, he probably had no friends, right? He was probably very pleased that just these group of disciples were just going to be with him. And he would be very protective of them and he'd want them there and he'd hoard them there. Because after all, who wants to hang out with a man who dresses in camel's hair and eats locusts and honey? No one wants to do that. But the Bible paints a different picture, right? In fact, the Gospel of Luke, we see this. And he, speaking of John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 7 it says... He said, therefore, to the crowds that had came out to be baptized by him. You see, John the Baptist is going around and he's preaching. And, and what's happening? The crowds are coming. The crowds are coming. The crowds are coming. And you see this theme happen all throughout John the Baptist's ministry, that when he preaches, the crowds come. This is not a man devoid of friends. This is a man with many followers. This is a man with many disciples. And yet, one of the interesting things to me about what John the Baptist does is he doesn't tickle their ears, right? In fact, in Luke 
Chapter three and verse seven, he follows up to the crowds. He says this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. This is not how you gain a crowd. John's primary concern he's showing us is that crowd gathering is not his goal. His point, his purpose in life, which was stated back in John chapter one, is this, to point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who has come into the world. He is here. We see this in other places where the crowds are gathering. Matthew chapter three and verse five, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the water. And yet his disciples come to him and say, hey, you man with a big crowd, a big following, look, your people are leaving you. This man had many Twitter followers. He had many Instagram likes. He was in, and he is offered an invitation here to be injured by what Jesus is doing by someone who was contrary to the purposes of God. This was a man with a platform. Wouldn't it be nice, by the way, just to be validated by others? Wouldn't it be nice to have people eating out of the palm of your hand? Wouldn't it be nice to be like John the Baptist and have people hanging on the edge of every word that you said? How nice would that be? And yet, look, John, look, they're leaving you and they're going and they're following Jesus. Now, John is a human here. He's a human. And, and, and as any human would, he likely would struggle with temptation in this very moment to be disgruntled, to rise up against where the crowds are going and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hang on my every word. Stay here with me. But that is not what he does. And, you know, we've all been there, right? We, you have been there. You, there have been times in your life where you did not get the credit at work for the hard work that you put in. Maybe you work for a manager, right? And you've been working hard, working hard, working hard to make the team, to make your manager successful. And then his higher up comes and pats him on the back because he did an outstanding job. Meanwhile, you knew deep down, I was the one that did all that work. We all know that feeling. This is, this is the moment that John the Baptist is in. And how does he deal with it? And I think this is important for us. How does he deal with this invitation to be injured by others? We see it in John 3.27. He says this. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You see, John can be confident in his role in his responsibilities that God has given him on the earth because he knows that God is ultimately sovereign. He knows that when the crowds come, God is sovereign. He knows when the crowds leave that God is sovereign. He knows that as we'll see in just a little bit, when Herod requests his head be on a platter, that God is still sovereign. He knows that man cannot receive not one thing unless it is given to him by God. The very platform that John the Baptist had, he knew it was a gift and it was a stewardship from God. 
And we all have something like this. You have a job and, a res- and responsibilities in this world that are intended to not point to you, but are intended to be used to point to Christ. You might have a nice job in this world to be able to do that with. You might be in a job that you don't necessarily love, but the the same is true. God has put you in the place where you are to point others to him. We have a role like John the Baptist in this world to, to make way the king, to make way for the king who's come to take away the sins of the world. You might have a nice house, But that's just your platform for making something great of God. And so, sure, yes, John trusted in God's sovereignty. He appreciated, I think, the gift and the responsibility that God had given him. But he also knew something else was going on here in the person and work of Christ. He knew that Christ was the one who had come to take away the sins of the world, to make all things new, to satisfy the very desires of God our hearts. And he illustrates this differently or further. And we see in in verses 28 through 30, I'm just going to kind of read them again right here. In verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He takes us to a wedding. And weddings are awesome. I love being a part of weddings. I I love going to weddings. I probably enjoy just going and watching a wedding more than I love participating in a wedding, if I'm just being honest with you. It's just fun and refreshing. It reminds me of my wedding. It's just a fun event to be a part of. It's fun to celebrate with others. But as a pastor, I've got to tell you, when you are officiating a wedding, there are some weddings that are fun, and there are some weddings that are not fun to officiate, okay? I hate to put that out there. I don't mean to cause any kind of like bridal anxiety if you've got any kind of like a wedding on the calendar, and you're like, oh, I want to have a fun wedding, and maybe I won't have a fun, I'm not trying to do that at all. All I'm trying to do is say, there, there are some weddings that I've really, really enjoyed, and there's some weddings that, that I do, okay? And I just did one a couple weeks ago, and it was awesome. It was Derek and Carrie. That was a very fun wedding, just so, you know, I saw Carrie here earlier. Your, your wedding was awesome. But, but, here's, but, here's, but here's why. Here's why that wedding was awesome. Obviously, we love Derek and Carrie, but you know what else? When you go to the rehearsal dinner, and you hear the stories, right? I've been at some weddings where it's like, you know, the best man stands up to do an obligatory speech, and he kind of says something to the effect, well, Blake, he's a, he's, he's a good person, and, uh, and man, he, he's, he's lucky to have her, and we're just here, we're excited for you, and uh, man, glad to be a part of this. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't that thrilling? I, you know, that was probably more like my best man speech, by the way. But like, but what we saw at Derek and Carrie's wedding, or the dinner, the rehearsal dinner, was something quite different, right? It was guys standing up and girls standing up and saying, "Here's a story about this man. Here's all that he meant to me. 
Here's why I am so thrilled that you are getting to marry this girl and that you are getting to marry this man. We are pumped to be here. It was basically a party. It was so exciting and fun to be a part of, and that is the difference. The joy of the wedding party makes or breaks a wedding for me that I'm officiating. And, and, and that was such a fun one. Well, I think what John is getting at here is similar, right? But what John is writing in is, is a context that's a little bit different from ours. Um, the bridegroom and his friend looked a little different in weddings whenever this was written over 2,000 years ago than they do today. And as I was researching for this sermon, I found out that it's actually the friend of the bridegroom who ushers the bride to the groom. Isn't that an interesting thing? John the Baptist here, in his role and responsibility, is saying, I'm not just standing next to you, Jesus, on your wedding day. Rather, I am the one ushering the bride down to you. And John's response, as he sees the Messiah's face, as he sees the the Messiah who's here to fulfill all that the world was created for, as John looks at his face, his joy is complete. His joy is complete. And this is something else that I think we should consider together. Joy is a very interesting thing. And, and I believe, and you likely understand, maybe you've never thought about this, but we are all on a joy excursion, okay? In this world, we're all searching for joy. We are. We, we were meant for joy. We were meant to be with God forever. We were meant to be in the garden where every need that we have was fulfilled in, in God. All we needed to do was just enjoy creation, enjoy the world, and reap the benefits of God every single day. But we live in a world where obviously we have chosen sin over the good things of God. Our father Adam chose the, the sin over the good things of God. And so we deal with the implications of that. And so here in this world, while we are on this joy excursion, while we're meant for joy, we, we search for it at the horizontal, to le- horizontal level with no luck of finding it. And this, this is something that I believe is very interesting. I believe it's something that marketers have caught on to even, okay? Whenever your marketers are selling you something, they know that this is not the end-all, be-all purchase for your life. So you might have made a purchase where ahead of the purchase, they just thought, man, if I get this, this will satisfy me to the fullest. Now, I know you probably wouldn't say that, but deep down you were just like, I gotta have it or else this is going to at least, maybe not complete my joy, but it's gonna give me a darn good taste of joy, okay? And then you use whatever that product was for like a year until the next version comes out and you're like, wait a minute, the joy that I experienced there is now gone, It probably vanished after a week or so, so on and so forth. Marketing companies get that. And so what they try to do is they try to use greater themes of joy and apply them to their products so that you might buy them. And I found a great example. And since we've already kind of used video today, I figured like, this is like video Sunday, okay? So uh, watch this with me. This is from McDonald's. Hey, before we watch this, by the way, if you serve on hands team, 
every Sunday morning, we order McDonald's for you, okay? It's not because of this commercial, but it is a nice perk, okay? And so this doesn't just happen. So if you want to serve your church and eat McDonald's, show up early, and we'll do that for you. Don't you just feel the joy? Listen, this is a brave move by McDonald's, right? I mean, they, they are basically equating the experience of eating two patties of, of beef, I guess, you know, with, with cheese and like lettuce and tomato and onion, if you're adventurous, with like some super sugar-infused ketchup and, and different kind of stuff like that. With this with like fashion shows and like partying and, and all of this kind of stuff. Experience the joy. Eat a Big Mac. But you see, McDonald's can't just put a picture of a Big Mac on the TV and expect you to want it. You're not meant for a burger. You're meant for joy. And so what they do is they say, let's paint a big picture of joy and let's see how we can offer the joy through what we have. All they need you to do is to drive through the drive through one or two more times than you would in the year for that to be successful. By the, I mean, their marketing, what is their captive? I mean, their audience is what? A billion people. I mean, there's McDonald's everywhere, probably more billions of people. Um, but they're seeking to drive behavior by appealing to joy. Well, here's the deal. You will always be on a, journey, a joy journey, a joy excursion if you look for joy at the horizontal level. You'll always come up wanting when you look for joy at the horizontal level. John the Baptist gets this, and I hope you do here today as well. Um, Abby and I, we got to go to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. It was so much fun. Um, they, they have a great place to ride bicycles, right? And so Cannon, my oldest, and Ella Watts, I guess. She's also learning how to ride a bicycle. But he's kind of like bigger kid bicycle with training wheels kind of stage. And he's very cautious, you know, when he, when he drives. I'm encouraging him, you know, go faster, take a risk. But he's very cautious when he rides. But when he's riding, he just has this great expression of joy the whole time, right? And so Abby and I, as we're kind of walking around the circle where, where we do the, the bike riding, I, I get a sense of joy just watching him, right? I, I, I love seeing my little image bearer, Cannon Rogers, enjoy the things of the world. That does something for me as a father. And that's a good thing. But that's horizontal joy. And here, here's how you know it'll never fulfill you. Because in just a few minutes after that bike ride ended, whenever he was on top of the world and I was just enjoying his enjoyment, you know what happens? He looks up at me and says, no, I'm not gonna do what you want me to do. And it's like, wait a minute, that great feeling of joy that I just had is now gone. And now I'm struggling with anger 
right? This is the story of seeking joy at the horizontal level. Even the good things, like your children, and even like experiencing joy because your children are experiencing joy, those are good things. Those are gifts from God. But even those things at the horizontal level will leave you wanting. They will leave you wanting more joy. We can never be fulfilled at the horizontal level. And so I want to point you to this idea of biblical joy. And I think this is what John is getting at here. I think the gospel writer John wants us to understand this about Jesus and the joy that he provides. Biblical joy is the good feeling that is produced when simultaneously realizing, okay, and that is an important phrase there, simultaneously realizing that your greatest need in life is God. You are intended for God. When you realize that your greatest need in life is to have God and at the same time know that God has provided access to himself through the person and work of Christ, that is biblical joy. That is staunch joy. Whenever you come to know that and to trust that and to bank your whole life on that, that is a joy that in spite of the difficulties of life can never, ever be taken away from you. This is staunch joy. This is joy that never leaves you. This is joy that never forsakes you. This is joy that you can carry out forever. This is the joy that we have access to when we hope for heaven and long for heaven. This is the kind of joy that we see there. And this is a work of the Spirit. Now, it is important that you simultaneously realize these things, right? If you realize that, wow, my greatest need is God, and yet I've sinned, that leads to despair. But when you couple that reality with the idea of what God is saying to us, that he has provided access to himself through the person and work of Christ, you are refreshed. This is the kind of joy that John wants. Now, we can't find it at the horizontal level, but interestingly enough, John the Baptist here is seeing completed joy at the horizontal level. Christ is here with him. Christ is accessible. He's right over there. He can see him. He can talk to him. He's there. And John goes on to say in verse 30, something that we likely like have all said before. We, we likely hope to carry this as a mantra for our lives. He must increase and I must de decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, I, I believe that if you're living and breathing in this room today, this is a verse that you will struggle with. Okay? This, is, this is a verse that you'll struggle with. He must increase and I must decrease. You'll struggle with this. Every day of your life until Christ returns and takes all of the sin of the world away, you will struggle with this. And I, I believe that, that John is kind of even in this moment where he's been invited to be injured by his friends, where he's considering the fact that his platform is shrinking and all are going to Jesus. I think he's even coaching himself when he's saying this. He must increase and I must decrease. We all coach ourselves, by the way. Uh, psychologists say anymore that, that we have around 6,000 thoughts a day on average. Okay, It's kind of a lot. You ever thought about that? That's a lot, Chip. 
That's a lot of thinking to yourself in a day. And that's one of the reasons that we as pastors and we as staff at Christ Covenant, we're always on you about the spiritual disciplines because Paul, the Apostle Paul, also reminds us that we need to have our minds renewed by what? By the Word. We're on you for that reason because we, we want your good in this life. But you are saying 6,000 thoughts to yourself in a day. And one of the things that Satan likes to do is to twist these phrases, as I've kind of outlined here. One of the things that Satan would have you believe is the second phrase here. He must increase, and I must increase. He must increase, and I must increase. Now, again, if you're living and breathing in this room, we are all struggling with this because we are all human beings who displace ourselves in light of God's glory. Um, this is the unfiltered mantra of the prosperity gospel, by the way. More faith, more stuff. More faith, more power for you. But in our hearts, we probably wouldn't in this room say, yeah, the prosperity gospel is what we're after. But this is something that may rule our heart. This idea that he must increase, yes, but I must increase as well. This is the mantra of a man who sees Jesus as a means to an end and not the end in himself. John is coaching himself here. He, he's reminding himself as he's reminding those around him, he must increase and I must decrease. But we're born into the world actually thinking this other thing, that he must decrease and I must increase. That's how we actually come into this world. And it is by the work of the Spirit that he reorients us to think differently, to show us that no, life is not about you and your platform, for that is fleeting, that is fading. Rather, life is about the one who has come to make all things new, to take away the sins of the world. Ultimately, the distance in the heart between the second and the third phrase, he must increase and I must increase, he must decrease and I must increase, really isn't that far. You see, Jesus tells us this. He says, no one can serve two masters for you'll serve one and hate the other. You, you, you can't do that. And John realizes what is ultimate and good here. And he's saying this as his very last words. You know, John's fame grew so much that he ended up having the, the ear of, of King Herod, okay? And King Herod even brought John the Baptist in. His fame grew so much. Even King Herod brought John the Baptist in. And he, he loved that which John the Baptist said. He, kinda, he also hung on the very words, the edge of the words that John the Baptist was saying until it got a little bit too personal for him. You see, King Herod was also living with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist confronted him in that. And he said, he said, in Matthew 14, um, it is not lawful, in, in verse 4, it is not lawful for you to have her, speaking of Herodias. And this totally upsetted Herodias, right? This embarrassed her. This brought shame upon her. Again, she was sleeping and living with the king. She loved this kind of platform. And John the Baptist said, in God's economy, this is not right, and, he, and so his fame grew so much that it cost him 
his very life. But it was in the face of death even, in the face of difficulty and in the face of all of the trials, because John's joy had been completed in Christ, he could move forward faithfully even when it cost him his head. And there's an explanation here. You see, in, this, in the last little section of this passage, we have an explanation. And in a sense, John, the apostle, the writer here, is kind of going into a narrator's voice, right? He's going to be explaining what this story means for all who hear, okay? And I'm going to read it for us. And, and essentially what, what he says in verses 31 through 35 are the same, that Jesus is better, that, that Jesus is from above. Read it with me. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John is explaining this for us. The Father loves the Son and has given, given all things into his hands. You have been on a joy search since the day you were born. And you too were meant to see your joy fulfilled and completed in the person and the work of Christ. That whenever you hear the voice of the bridegroom, that you too have your joy completed as part of the bride. But then he says something in verse 36 that, that is quite stark. And it's not all that different from the hard words that he shared with Herodias, but it's words that, that I want us to take into communion. And so our deacons are going to begin to come forward, and I'm going to read these words, and, and they're going to they're begin dispersing the elements among us here in just a second. But these words are this, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are harsh words. And you see, there's, there's a distinction to be made between he who believes by professing belief and he who believes through obedience. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey. Are you a person who hears and does the word of God? Are you a person who hears and obeys the word of God? If you are that person, you have access to this table. You have access to these elements that God has gifted to us as a reminder of what Christ has done. You see, what Christ did was, in spite of the fact that you came into the world thinking that he must decrease and that you must increase, what did Christ do? In Philippians 2, he tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that he humbled himself to take on a bloody cross for you and I, that Jesus lowered himself so that you may be raised up. And if, so if you're trusting in that, you have access to these elements, and we gladly rejoice over the fact that we will share in this reminder together here in a moment. If you're a guest, or if you're, if you're a guest and you've professed Christ and you're found in Jesus, and your joy's been completed in him, we invite you to this table. But if you're a person who's unsure of what this is, I just want to ask that you not participate. 
that the words that John says here in verse 36, they are difficult, but they are true. That the wrath of God remains on you. And, and while you may not understand, there is an invitation for hope. And at the end of the service today, one of the things that would make us so happy is that if you're struggling to understand where your hope is, we would love to share with you the kind of vision that John the Baptist had of Jesus that he provides for you. And so Jordan and the band, they're gonna begin playing. We're gonna sing a song of rejoicing here in just a moment. And I'm gonna come back up and we'll take, we'll take these elements uh, together. And so as the elements pass, let's hope in the Lord.